listening to The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. There's an urgent need for blood donations in Hawaii. We talked to Kim and Nguyen, the CEO of the Hawaii Blood Bank, earlier this week. Just coming off the holiday weekend, she tells us the situation is scary. Our blood supplies across the country have dropped so low that the American Red Cross has declared a national crisis, and our stash of blood locally is very, very low. The latest Omicron surge hasn't helped the situation, so there is an appeal for donors to help us get through this week and beyond. Over the weekend, I would say every night I was the medical director on call, and I was called on every order of blood. That's how bad it was. Every day, we expect to open the day in the morning with at least three days, only three days, three days supply, three and a half days supply of universal red cells, universal blood, that's type O on our shelves, three and a half days supply. So this morning we opened up with 90. That's just under one day supply. Right now we're at 50. We're at half of one day supply and that's not having filled all of Honolulu hospital orders. After we fill Honolulu orders, by the end of this afternoon, we'll probably be down to 20. Oh, my goodness. And that, unfortunately, what is today, January 18th, that's how it's been over the last two weeks. The good news is by midnight tonight, you know, yesterday and the day before's blood collection, we will label and put out on the shelf, and tomorrow we'll have more, and we start again. And it's not, it's not a good way to live, Catherine. We're living hand-to-mouth, and it's day after day. So it's by the skin of our teeth. It's very scary. So Blood Bank of Hawaii is at a half of a day's supply to one day supply of blood every morning. So that means that we're not where we need to be and our hospitals aren't where they want to be either. So we need our community, we need 100 people to step up and roll up their sleeves every day. And within a week or two, we will recover. I'm sure, though, you know, with this latest Omicron surge, that a lot of folks, a lot of donors might be put out of commission because they might have been exposed or they're quarantining or isolating. Mm So that prevents them from going out and donating blood. Yes. How did we get to this level? As bad as we are in Hawaii, it is much worse in many regions on the mainland where, frankly, hospitals have had to make terrible decisions about whose loved one has to wait for blood. Please don't make us get into that here. And with the community coming forward, we won't have to get into that critical crisis here in Hawaii. We're not that bad, and we want to keep from getting that way. And why did we get that way? A couple reasons. Omicron, I think donors are scared, and I think donors are sick. Also our staff, because we have staff who have children, and uh, kids are getting sick. Staff are, are having to call out sick. You know, I have a small child myself, and I've gotten dear parent letters waiting for the day when, you know, I have to quarantine with my children or my child. So I think Omicron has made an impact. I think the holidays, the bad weather during Christmas, um, it's, it's the trifecta. But with our community coming forward, I think in, in a week or two, we, we can recover. And we can forestall 
disaster. On the hospital side, I don't know if you've heard, but we've had a lot of accidents on the road. And so our hospitals are extremely busy right now. And what types of blood do you need? What, uh, what types of donors do you need to rally out there? Right now, we actually need every type. It, definitely universal blood, type O. But to be honest with you, Catherine, we, we could use every type. So what I would say to donors is we need your type. We need your type. So just 100 people, 10 to 20 families every day that will help us get over the hump. So for folks who are maybe leery about being in an indoor setting, do you have the mobile uh, blood bank This is anywhere? the great news. So we have two blood centers, Dillingham and Young Street, our blood center, and then we have pop-up donation centers at Waikele, at Windward Mall, and we have staff, we are, we have uh, masks, we're, we're now wearing double masks, face shields, uh, we're using enhanced uh, sanitation, enhanced PPE, very safe methodology, and our staff are fully vaccinated. Uh, many of our staff are now boosted, and so it is safe to donate. I want to reassure all of our donors, you can make an appointment online, dbh.org, or call um, 808-848-4770. And what about the availability of blood products on the neighbor islands? So the good news is we are uh, sending blood to our neighbor island hospitals every day, multiple times a day. So we serve our neighbor island hospitals. In fact, we're on Hilo as we speak right now. And uh, our Hilo Drive is going very, very well. In normal times and pre-COVID times, what would our supply be normally? So in pre-COVID times, the first two weeks of January are uh, one of the most challenging times of the year because donors have other things that they're thinking about during the holidays. Well, guess what? Right after the holidays are over, that's when patients schedule all of their surgeries, many of their scheduled surgeries. And so the weeks of January are some of the busiest times for our hospitals, and the donors are just coming back. Schools are just coming back. That's pre-COVID. Pre-COVID's tough enough. Now you put the pandemic in, we don't have school blood drives. We don't have the large blood drives that we used to have. And then on top of that, you have the weather, you have Omicron. And so it's really a confluence of just real big challenges. And this month happens to be Blood Donor Month. And I understand that you have uh, some partnerships with some local businesses to kind of incentivize folks to help out? We we absolutely do. And so over the holidays, we partnered with Food Bank. And our challenge to our community is uh, give blood and hunger. So for every donation, Blood Bank of Hawaii is providing a meal. And we're very proud that so far into the holidays, we have not only saved lives, but we have donated in the month of December alone almost 4,500 meals to families. And we're extending it throughout the month of January. And our goal is to double that number in the month of January. So when you come out to donate, not only are you saving a life, but you're also feeding a family. 
as far as blood drives, then you've got coming up for the rest of the month. So good news. We are now at Capillary Commons. We just opened a pop-up donation site at Capillary Commons. We are there Mondays, Tuesdays, and Sundays. So please check out our website or give us a call. And uh, we are in a community near you on Oahu, and we go to the neighbor islands once a month. And, uh, gosh, you can really help more than just the blood bank in this time of need. Uh, Just help our community in general by coming out. Absolutely. And that's what it's about. It's about my family, your family, and our community because we're here to save lives in our community. So would we normally have like a week's supply of O-positive? That's what people don't realize. During the best of times... This entire state only has one week supply on the shelf. Half of it is here at the Blood Bank of Hawaii, and half of it is in the hospital. So we need 150 to 200 donors every day to keep our blood supply going. And so when you are driving on H1 or on the road, your local road, and, you know, you hear a siren, that's that's what you should be thinking about is, hey, did I remember to donate blood this month? And, and it's so that if, God forbid, my loved one needs blood, is that blood on the shelf for, for my family member? And the answer should be yes, it's there already. And then with this national shortage, I mean, so it's not like we can ask for blood to be sent over to us. I mean, we, we depend on local donors. Absolutely. The good news is with all this news that we're hearing about supply chain shortage, we've got the supply, the raw material, right here, right here in our community. We are the blood supply. Every single one of you walking around, you're the blood supply of the Blood Bank of Hawaii. And so um, we we don't have to depend on mainland. We, we've got it right here. Okay. And then is this the worst you've seen it? Yes, unfortunately, you know, um, you may have seen that news story. I'm, I'm sad to say that um, there are patients that rely on lifelong transfusions that um, for the last year, two years during the pandemic, every time, every three weeks when they go in to make their appointment, they don't know whether that appointment is going to be canceled or not due to lack of blood. Mm. We never want that to happen here in Hawaii, and it doesn't have to be because we've got the supply right here in our community. We may be alone in the Pacific, but we're alone together. That was Kim and Nguyen, CEO of the Hawaii Blood Bank. We will have links on our website to uh, to the info about the upcoming blood drives throughout the state.
Family and friends of the two Honolulu police officers killed by a gunman two years ago gathered last evening on Hibiscus Drive for a private memorial to mark the anniversary. Officers T- Tiffany Enriquez and Kauliki Kalama were shot responding to a 9-11 call for a stabbing by a man who was being evicted from his rental. The gunman was Jerry Hannell, known to his neighbors as Yarda. His uh, landlady, Lois Kane, died in the fire that destroyed or damaged about a half a dozen homes. But walk or drive by the small street today, and you'll see that one home has been rebuilt. It was a historic 1925 craftsman home, and the Freeman family moved in just barely a month ago. We were out on the porch earlier this week as passers-by stopped to chat to thank them for rebuilding. They say the small cottage is a welcome sight. Two other homes are being renovated, and permits are in hand for two other properties. The property where the gunman lived has been sold. Another neighbor has sold and moved away. We talked to resident Russell Freeman last year, and this week he graciously chatted with us again. His mood was reflective and hopeful. We're sitting out here uh, on your front porch, and you have rebuilt the house, and you have been here now a month. That's right. We, We moved in on Christmas Eve. They worked very hard to make sure the place was livable for us. It's still uh, some things to do, but uh, we're getting there and we'll be properly rigged up with electricity uh, when HECO gets round to uh, fixing us up, which will be in a week or two, but now we're doing the uh, landscaping and then uh, the building process will be pretty much complete. So we're looking at this sign. It says Historic Residence, and it used to hang on your wall and... and your house did not survive, but this survived the fire. But the home that you built now is no longer a historic property because that, that home is gone. Uh, yes, the historic property has to be at least 50 years old. And, of course, the house we have now is completely brand new. Um, now I like to say it's actually minus one month old because it'll probably be a bit about a month before the inspector gives the final okay uh, for everything to be complete. Uh, so, yes, no longer historic. I think it would have been okay if we had been less than 50% damaged because there's, there's a myth that you can't do anything much with historic homes, but actually you can do quite a lot. You know, you can even make quite substantial changes as long as they're done in the original style. Um, that, you know, once more than 50% is gone, then no longer historic. We have to wait for another 50 years. So what's it been like? I mean, you folks have been here. I'm sure your neighbors have stopped by just to welcome you back, knowing that you're getting settled back in. Well, yes. Uh, we sit on the front porch for the night, and even a complete stranger stop and like to have a chat about the house and say, this is great, it looks nice, and uh, we say, thank you very much. But I think people are really quite pleased to see the neighbourhood finally recovering and... Uh, things coming back to normal and maybe in about two years time you'll find that uh, everybody's rebuilt and perhaps we can uh, the whole thing will be part of history which is which would be good you have one home behind you that's under renovation you've got one home to the left that's also being renovated it was damaged in the uh, in the fire and then you've got two and three empty lots that still yet the homes i guess have to get permitted Yes, there's three empty lots, but at least uh, two of the owners have got their plans in for permitting and they've been in for a month or two, so hopefully it won't be very long before they can start the building process. Uh, Going by our experience, it'll probably be at least six months, but 
that's okay. Uh, so maybe two years time, you'll you'll stop seeing signs of the fire that happened. So. You know, I've talked with folks at the Honolulu Police Department, and you know, the families and friends plan to gather and and uh, just pause and reflect. I guess you know, they try and move on. Yes, I think there'll be a, a small, just private gathering. Uh, and we've met them all, and uh, you know we've uh, shared some common experiences together. So it'd be nice to see them again. Yeah, I think just help help each other heal, I guess, and get past this. That's right. It's uh, yes, it was interesting talking to people that were with the police force on that day and get their experiences. And you know, I learned quite a lot because everybody just sees a little part of of of, of a bigger picture. Uh, when things happen, so uh, we learn something new every time. Well, we're sitting here on some chairs that <laughs> some fine folks have donated. You have a, a papaya tree and a pot, and, and uh, that'll find a home somewhere on the property? Yes, we've, uh, we'll get the grass uh, sod. We've got the landscapers in. The grass sod will be in in a week or two, but uh, we've left us ourselves plenty of room at the back so we can plant some fruit trees and Otherwise, we'll uh, be trying to plant Hawaiian native trees that are most suitable for here so we can get the same here as we had before. Your neighbours that have uh, been on the street for, I guess, some as long as you have, some have sold and moved away. Um, you've got new new neighbours. Yes, well, we're very pleased to say that uh, one of the new neighbours has got young children, so we're hoping that we're going to see the same kind of street life as we had before when kids were riding skateboards up and down and having fun and we'll get back to the stage where we can have a street party in the park on uh, 4th of July. So yes, I think there's, there's all indications are that that will happen. Okay. Um, gosh, I don't know. Hibiscus Drive. Do you know why it's called Hibiscus Drive or anything about that? Uh, yes, it was just named by the original developers, the um, Waterhouse, Henry Waterhouse and Company, who developed the the whole area, uh, Diamond Head Terrace, back in 20, uh, 1921, just over 100 years ago. But they named all the streets. Uh, some of the streets did change from the original name. I know Kiali was originally called Croton Avenue according to the original development, but otherwise they just came up with a nice Hawaiian-sounding name. In fact, it's quite hard to grow hibiscus in this street <laughs> because you've got quite a lot of uh, the various bugs that eat the trees, so we're, we're steering away from planting hibiscus, unfortunately, because they don't do so well. <laughs> we'll have to get you connected with the hibiscus lady and maybe you can do something about that. <laughs> to get the right one. Life goes on on hibiscus drive. Yes, life goes on on Hibiscus Drive. I, I've, I've told many people that the real tragedy that happened two years ago was the tragedy was that everybody knew this man was mentally ill and that they couldn't do anything about it. So I'm not saying, you know, the police, their hands were tied. So there needs to be some something put into place where people are obviously a danger to themselves or others, which is the criteria, which he clearly was for many years. Um, they, you know, something, some action needs to be taken. Um, 
and if that was the case, well, something good could come of this because this should never have happened. That's the tragedy, really. We have been hearing from Russell Freeman, a resident of Hibiscus Drive. We reflected on the attempts to pass gun and mental health legislation as a result of the tragedy on the street. His family has rebuilt the Craftsman Cottage that was lost in the fire. The historic home sign that survived the fire will likely find a place in one of the new rooms. Neighbors passing by say they are happy to see the home spring from the ashes. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Queen's Healthcare Centers, providing primary care at multiple locations across Hawaii. Learn more by calling 808-691-8200. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm Margaret Barkley, author of Ribs, a book of poetry. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about how poetry can reveal the truth of being a fully alive human. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for HPR local reporting comes from the Hawaii Community Foundation, working to create a movement through the change framework to help Hawaii communities solve challenges and thrive. HawaiiCommunityFoundation.org slash change to join the movement. Our reality check today looks at the snapshot of substitute teachers in our public schools. Honolulu Civil Beats education reporter Suvan Lee joins us today. Good morning. Hi, Catherine. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, so it was interesting, the picture that you paint of well, what's happening with this Omicron variant. Yeah, well, as we know, schools have been hit very hard since this variant has kind of, you know, wreaked so much havoc in Hawaii and elsewhere. And as a result, uh, many teachers are are calling in sick and and are absent from school, especially since uh, schools came back after the winter break in in early January. And as a result, um, the DOE has had to turn to their substitute pool to fill in for these vacancies. But even even these substitutes are are not large enough in number to to accept all the jobs that are coming their way in a flurry, might I add. And um, so I, yeah, go ahead. No, so so we have actually what uh, fewer substitute teachers uh, this year than we did in previous times. That's right. In general, overall, the the DOE had about forty seven hundred substitutes total in its pool um, as of the twenty nineteen twenty school year. But this year, they're down to about thirty nine hundred, and, and these are you know considered the active substitutes. But again, not all of them will accept every call request that comes their way. So it, it's not necessarily um, going to be uh, one on one for one. There, there are still vacancies out there in classrooms. And you talked to a number of substitutes. Um, you know, what was their experience like? That's right. I talked to a number of subs for this story. I, I mean, I was curious about their 
their own background and their training and and you know their their why they are wanting to do this job in, in these stressful times and, and and it really runs the gamut. Some of them are retired. Some of them were formerly uh, full-time DOE teachers who just want more flexibility in their schedule. Some are new graduates who are sort of feeling their way out and contemplating what they want to do for a full-time profession. So, you know, many of them spoke to me about, about, about accepting assignments maybe several days a week up to for an entire school year, in which case they would be considered a long-term sub. But they don't get paid any more if they're considered a long-term sub. So they get paid a daily rate, and it depends on their education level and their background as far as that rate goes. But one common pattern that I heard from all of my conversations in the course of reporting this story is that they're just getting bombarded with call requests. Uh, there is something called the employee, um, the Hawaii uh, Employment Teacher Assistance um, Call Request Hotline that that, that sends automatic calls to them, you know, depending on certain hours of the day, asking if they can come in. And, and many of them spoke to me about getting multiple calls a day for asking them to come in, or even direct calls from schools or uh, teachers that they know personally, asking if they can cover for them. So they can't accept every assignment, and you know, uh, nor are they obligated to. It's their choice. However, there is definitely an increased demand for their time in these COVID times. I thought it was interesting that that one uh, substitute uh, said that she was uh, kind of uh, picky, that she was mainly subbing at her child's school. Right. Well, I, I did talk to a, a, you know, a former former DOE full-time teacher who, who is subbing at her children's schools in Kailua. And her rationale for being selective about her assignments was that she's She's more comfortable entering into a school environment where she knows their COVID safety protocols, where she knows the daily case count on any given day because she's getting that communication from the schools as a parent. So, so I think that's understandable that one of the um, you know considerations here in accepting a request, uh, an assignment is, is, is it safe? To, to go into an environment you're, you might not be familiar with. So, so as a parent and as a mom, she, she, was, she was very upfront with me about, about her reasons why she was only subbing at those particular schools. Well, uh, one, I think my favorite line in, in your story were, was where you talked about the one school that calls the substitutes guest teachers, and I think that's brilliant. Uh-huh. Uh, yes. Uh, she was also a retired DOE teacher who, who spoke to me about some of the frustrations percolating in the education community about amongst subs. And, and it's not just about the pay, which is low, and about the, and which and the lack of benefits, by the way. It's about it's about the respect that is being conferred on the teachers in this day and age. And the school calls substitutes, not substitutes, they call them guest teachers. So it makes the kids excited. It inspires a little bit of enthusiasm in the community, and she was very appreciative of that. Yeah, great idea. Well, thank you so much, Suvon. Absolutely, thank you. That was reporter Suvon Lee with today's Reality Check. Um, read her story. Visit civilbeat.org.
Governor David Ige extended the emergency relief program for Maui County's access deer overpopulation problems this month. The most troubling development is that the deer are now finding their way onto the runway at Kahului Airport, creating unsafe conditions for aircraft. Drought conditions a year ago forced large numbers of the animals into agricultural and populated areas seeking food and water. And on Molokai, many deer died, their carcasses creating a public health issue. We spoke with then-Senator Kalani English shortly before the governor's first emergency proclamation about what the state and county was doing to deal with the problem. The conversations, Russell Sobiono spoke to his successor, successor Senator Lynn DeCoit, about where we are now. Has the situation gotten better or worse? Molokai had the bad situation. Mm-hmm. Their situation got better. Okay. Uh, we don't have them dying on the side of the road. And if they are, they're dying because they got hit. They are still overpopulated, but not as bad. Maui is having the problem with more increased population. Lanai is also having an issue which they are having put under control. You know, I think that what we got to look at is that when we have an emergency proclamation, it's truly an emergency, and it is. But Maui needs to bring this under control faster than the other two because of the heavy population of just people in general. You know, they had a briefing with DLNR. And to my amazement, I could not believe that this was not the top of their priority to manage this. And and I say that because the director, Suzanne Case, has said that this is not a priority of ours. Ours is environmental. And I said, this is an environmental issue because deer, are di- deer is dying. Deer is causing erosion. That erosion during the winter months runs off and suffocates our reefs. Starvation leads to unhealthy herds of deer, which is a consumption of a lot of the people of Hawaii. The man, the boss, I should say, within DOFA, Dave Smith also did not think it was a priority. And for the likes of me, I'm just little taken aback with the situation. Even while we had told them this is the second emergency proclamation that we reopt on behalf of the governor. So whose priority should this be? Because this should remain under forestry and wildlife with the outreach of other landowners, outreach towards hunters that can or could be contracted out so that we bring this situation under control. Last year, we had over 100 accidents just on Molokai alone. Maui's numbers have increased while we have been meeting with Lanai via Zoom to address their community, some of the issues. Pulama Lanai has opened up their land so that the community come out, can come out and hunt. I've reached out to the Department of Hawaiian Homelands who have not yet responded back to the Department of Forestry and Wildlife that also should be putting up their lands to be managed so that people that want to help, now that the community want to help, can also go out and help them under a management to say, okay, we have 5,000 acres here. These areas are going to be opened up for hunting with the distance amount that DOFA, Department of Forestry and Wildlife, specializes in. Because clearly what you're going to see is you're going to see an increase again when the rains subside, the growth of grass is gone. We do not want them coming into populated areas because what happened this year was it then breached the fence of the Maui runway. I saw that in, in the governor's press release. I know last year when we talked to Senator English, he said that that was about to happen, that it, it could happen, but it sounds now like it, it is happening. It happened. It, it happened. happened. And I think while this economy is driven on tourism, 
Not to mention that many of our local people from Maui go back and forth, like many other residents into Maui. That is the last thing I would think we would want, which is why the governor deemed necessary an emergency proclamation is imminent. There's so many different moving parts to this because then you have U.S. Wildlife Services, which is under the federal, that needs to manage the internal inside perimeter of the airport. DOFA can train. DOFA has resources to have the people in there trained. Everybody's sitting back and saying, well, we, we think this. And I said, it has to be brought down, number one. So I'm doing some introduction on bills to help have the necessary tools for Forestry Wildlife to, one, monitor, to make sure the surveying is there under a state agency and not an individual operator so that we can gauge today's numbers and then match it down the road to say, are we at a level of manageable herds versus unhealthy herds? And it's really frustrating, Russell, because we saw this coming. We tend to move after the fact. I don't like to be moving in like like, uh, FEMA does. I don't like the aftermath. We need the preventions. And the communities in Maui, Molokai, and I have always reached out. But how we push out funding and appropriation needs to be considered. What is the top priority now? It's to bring the herds down as soon as possible to manageable levels. And then it is to manage it appropriately and to make sure areas of high protection, especially the airport, yeah. um, is to make sure the safeguards Bills will be coming out, appropriations, and I am recommending that we shore up the fence line around the airport. Federal guidelines is asking for a pushback of another 40 more feet for a clear plane sight of airlines, which I totally agree with. But the federal keeps changing the guidelines on the state. It's just so frustrating. And as hard as we have the crew in Maui, uh, Marvin Moniz guys working, the proclamation, what it allows us to do also is to set back buffers. It's to help us grub areas without permits. It's to overcome those hurdles that we'd normally have to go through. Right. So, you know, we've they put a perimeter around there so that they can work on the fence. While we are challenged with bringing in some of the materials, you know, we've reached out to other agencies within the state county for materials. We've actually fl- looked at flying in some of these materials because of the, the delay in shipment. So, you know, if we had planned this a, a year ago when my predecessor and I had talked and had this discussion with Governor Egan, we would not be in a situation we are. And, you know, to prioritize some of this stuff, DLNRs, this should have been at the top of their list, part of ungulates, invasive species, and then to come back and say, you know, we need a, we need a manage, game management plan. But we have one. We right. have a game management plan. This should drive in funding at, the, at a time when those resources are limited but the manpower is plentiful. People that are licensed hunters can have this opportunity to be part of the situation of solving with the state and with the county, which is why I, I am very grateful to the people of Lance de Silva with DOFA Forestry, as well as John Maderis, who has the expertise and the know-how and is willing to help manage, as well as they're from the upcountry area that see the vast amounts of deer And, you know, while there's things that we can use to to bring these numbers down, we also want to make sure it's in a humane way as possible. You know, and it's not just just deer being shot and left. It's properly handling that carcass, whether or not individuals want to consume it, making sure the inspection of it is is perfect. You know, you can eat it. You know, there's a lot of things we do with access deer, but, you know, it's 
this, we're in an emergency and we, we need to treat like an emergency situation and bring those numbers down. It sounds like a solution for this type of emergency seems like it's multi-pronged. Do you feel like you'll be able to, to kind of bring all that together soon? Or do you th- still think that there's still some players that aren't quite in the game just yet? So one thing about Dova, Dova has done calling via helicopter for access deer. Of course, the cost to, to do it by helicopter can get costly, which is why I'm putting in funds for help with that, funds for infrared, so them to do surveying themselves. I feel good about it with, with having the conversation here at the Senate with my colleagues, as well as with our counterparts in, in the next chamber with the House. It doesn't help when the department doesn't prioritize it themselves. So it's almost as if, while we're trying to do the two, three pronger here, because there's a separation between what DLNR can do and what the Department of Ag needs to do. Because while there's a lot of people that are hunting that would love to share meat, and they can, it's the sale of it that is a killer. You know, you need a federal inspector there, which that would fall under USDA, mobile slaughterhouses and stuff. Also, it's a component within the Department of Ag. So it can't be a everything in a one request bill or appropriation. It needs to be break, broken out in divisions. So those are some of the challenges. And I think, you know, having the community that is very supportive. I mean, I know the thought behind some of this is that, you know, these guys come into our property, they start shooting up stuff and, and so forth. I said, you know, there's portions of huge tracts of areas. That if we are to do pilot programs and say, Dofa, can you manage this? Let's run a pilot program to see how it turns out. You know, you sign a waiver. These are the rules. You don't follow the rules. I'm sorry, you can no longer participate in this. You know, once you fire a firearm, you cannot pull it, the bullet back. You know, so the safety behind it, the license, the certified license and stuff that hunters have to get, you know, all of those things need to be considered. So the longer we take our time to do stuff like this, in this case, there is a property with the Department of Hawaiian Homeland. It's about 5,000 acres. Deer keep running past and then they stop in the middle of this property. You can't bring the herd down if the landowners are not cooperative. Yeah. So it has to be a full uh, prong, a uh, three prong approach where everybody has to be involved. If not, we're defeating the purpose. They'll just harbor. Okay, nobody's here. No, everybody's asleep. Let's move to the neighbors and, and have a feeding frenzy on their crops and, you know, branches that are their property are just being overgrazed now become subjected to erosion. And that erosion then encroaches on the people that are doing our fishing, you know, doing their own gathering for their meals. And, you know, it, it, it can be done. It's not rocket science. It needs buy-in, and and it's sad that the buy-in within the Department of Land and Natural Resources, the chair, has not put that as a priority, knowing that this is actually the third emergency proclamation if we counted last year's when we had the the deer just dying out on us. That was State Senator Linda Coy talking with HPR's Russell Subiano about the axis deer problem on the Valley Isle. Support for HPR comes from Parker School in Waimea on Hawaii Island, committed to knowing, valuing, and nurturing each student with a virtual open house Saturday, January 22nd. 
Details and registration at parkerschoolhawaii.org. One of the challenges of living through a pandemic is that you never know exactly when it's going to end. People who kind of figure everything will turn out okay one way or another, they have an easier time waiting, unquestionably. But uh, I think even the most optimistic, cheery person can be challenged by the right, <laughs> the right period of waiting. How to ease the agony of waiting this week on Hidden Brain from NPR. Beginning this evening at 7, following Living on Earth. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, offering experiences for Keiki to Kupuna. Featuring art from around the world, set amongst six courtyards, the Homa Cafe, and shop. More at honolulumuseum.org. You're listening to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. And we now go to this week's Manu Minute with an introduction from the Golden State. University of Hawaii Hilo professor Patrick Hart introduces us to the California quail. California quail are native to the west coast of North America and were first introduced to Hawaii way back in 1818 as a gift from a ship captain to King Kamehameha I. By the end of the 1800s, quail had expanded and become common across all the main Hawaiian islands. Like many other game bird introductions to Hawaii, their numbers declined for a variety of reasons, including hunting, predators, particularly mongoose, and possibly disease, to the point where they're now rare on all islands except for the big island, where they're still fairly common. California quail are only about 10 inches long from the tip of their tail to their bill, and are known for their distinct curled black topknot on their head that's made up of six feathers that droop forward. The males are particularly striking with a bluish-gray breast and back with white streaks and chestnut-colored cap on their head. California quail are mostly found in higher-elevation grasslands and woodlands on Mauna Kea and Mauna Loa, where they feed on a variety of seeds of both native and introduced plant species, also leaves and insects. They lay about 12 to 16 eggs in a nest, and similar to chickens, their young are known as precocial, meaning the babies are able to follow their parents and forage for food within minutes after hatching. One way to find California quail is by their call, which sounds a bit like Chicago, Chicago. You can typically find quail in big flocks, known as coveys, on the ground. But if they're startled, they'll loudly burst into flight all at once, making them very popular with hunters. For Hawaii Public Radio, this is Patrick Hart from the UH Hilo Department of Biology. Support for Manu Minute comes from Dr. Mike and Sharon Scott for the Friends of Hakalau Forest National Wildlife Refuge, a group of people with a passion for supporting the refuge. More about volunteering at friendsofhakalauforest.org. Today on The Longview, we talk about 
drinking and driving drunk. Earlier this month, the judge acquitted Representative Sharon Har of driving under the influence that the story has touched a nerve in the community. Our legal analyst, Neil Milner, joins us now. Good morning. Hey, that's quite an introduction, considering what I'm going to talk about. <laughs> well, you're talking about alcohol. Yeah, I am talking about alcohol because the case, her acquittal for drunken driving, got me interested in looking at drinking generally and looking at heavy drinking. And I decided to take a look at what animal or beast is the heaviest drinker of all. And it turns out to be the hamster. And so it turns out that hamsters are such heavy drinkers, and we'll get to where they get this alcohol. On average day, they drink, these little hamsters drink the equivalent of about one and three quarter quarts of Everclear, which is 190 proof grain alcohol, which, by the way, is a popular addition to pandemic parties, something that I remember from when I was in graduate school. And it doesn't affect them in the way that it affects humans. That is, if you, there's obviously, you put them behind the wheel to test this, but it's a hamster wheel. And not only do the hamsters drink all of this alcohol equivalent, not only do they prefer it to water, but it really doesn't affect their function, which is one of the things that scientists got interested in if you start thinking of uh, preventing people from drinking too much or the effects of drinking, that you put them on the wheel or you give them certain tests, you don't have to put them in high heels the way (laughs) our legislator, one of the things that came up. But that's, that's an issue. So why is it? Why is it the way that it is? And that's what that's what ultimately interested me. Well, so hamsters then can somehow process all this alcohol in their tiny little bodies. Yeah, yeah, they can process it. So think of think of um, uh, a couple of steps here. First of all, where do they get it? Well, hamsters are hoarders. That is, they bury a lot of nuts and seeds and and fruit, especially for later. And a lot of that food ferments. So when they ultimately eat it, so I don't know if the hamster puts it away in October and doesn't get around to eating it until, I don't know, January, that's a pretty good hit of alcohol. So that part of it is then evolutionary that they, because of how they are, they bury the food and the food becomes fermented and then they eat it. The other thing, and this probably is, is related to evolution too, their liver processes alcohol in a way that keeps much of the alcohol effects from going to the brain. So their liver is different than our liver. So these little buggers not only like the, the, the alcohol, they, that's how they survive, and it doesn't affect their behavior. They could stay on that hamster wheel without falling off. They also have a the scientists have used a flopping test, and that's mainly the reason why they are what they are. So what becomes interesting to scientists, and they've been studying hamsters for a long time, I should add, I had hamsters when I was a kid, and <laughs> maybe it would have been better if they had hoarded and had to gather their own food, because maybe they would have been a little more mellow. They were cute little creatures, but they were kind of nasty. I mean, we only had to pay 50 cents to get one, and that's about the worst that they were. So anyway, what the scientists wanted to do was to find out is, okay, if these are easily easily studied, and we can look at what would seem to reduce these creatures' appetite for alcohol to see if that would carry over to 
possibly human re- research and then uh, human behavior? And the answer is they haven't found a whole lot for sure. There's some evidence in one recent study that if you exercise, that would make a difference. But my favorite, and it's the one that Sarah Zhang talks about where I get a lot of this information, she's a science writer for the Atlantic Monthly, is that a bunch of scientists in the 90s wanted to see whether hamsters could be a good model for alcoholism studies. So they decided to test ethanol, the kind of heavy alcohol, against what they call, what she calls, carefully calorie-matched offerings of a variety of stuff, tomato juice, peach juice, mango juice, sugar water, and chocolate and sure plus nutrition shake. (laughs) Well, none, none of that stuff, with one exception, none of that stuff really made a difference, and none of it did the hamsters really go for, except for the chocolate and sure plus nutrition shake, which, of course, when we, well, at least when I think about uh, Insure Plus, I tend to think about it as a nutritional supplement to help people gain weight. And when they got, when the hamsters got this this stuff, Insure Plus, uh, they they started drinking less alcohol. So the good news is that possibly something like ch- chocolate Insure Plus worked the best. And they think it's because the preference for for taste. On the other hand, most people are not interested in uh, health, in, in something that helps your health but makes you gain weight. So the, the, uh, those they, hamsters yeah. were uh, uh, chocoholics, not alcoholics. It turns out, yeah, you have very good. They move from alcoholics to chocoholics, at least, at least in that direction. Yeah, it'd be interesting to know whether they could, you know, whether a heart-healthy dark chocolate drink would make a difference. So, so that's the reason. So, you know, it's what you, what you learn from this is a little bit about how scientific research works and uh, a lot more about hamsters and about how uh, evolution and eating habits really affect uh, what, what you could do. Well, I have to chuckle because this morning I had a vanilla protein drink <laughs> Not a chocolate insurer. <laughs> it probably will mean that you'll have only a couple of beers tonight, then, okay. because you've satisfied this. And I want to remind people that if it, this this kind of heavy duty science study reminded me of the Kia hamster ads that ran a number of years ago uh, on yes. television, which are among the best commercials ever. There is one where hamsters actually running on a wheel, although the best one is the hip hop hamster ad. Well, your visual of hamsters in high heels um, is going to be hard to unsee. <laughs> well, but think of the visual, which you can actually see, of a hamster dressed in kind of floppy, Bronx-oriented hip-hop clothes with a chain and a hat singing pretty good rap. Okay. All right. Well, that is our long view for today. Thank you very yeah. much, Neil Milner. <laughs> You're welcome. We have been chatting with our political analyst and contributing editor, Neil Milner, for The Long View. Don't you just love it? <laughs>
<laughs> that is it for now. Up tomorrow. Did you know we had something called National Hugging Day? Haven't done much of that aloha hugging during COVID, have you? Call our talk back line, email, connect with Facebook. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.